In today's episode, I sit down with Emily Whitehouse, the Partnerships Manager of So They Can. Em has over 15 years experience in the education and not-for-profit sector, leading a variety of corporate partnership and community engagement programs, both in Australia and overseas. Emily began her career as a primary school teacher in London before a short-term secondment as an education consultant to the community service volunteers, which triggered a longer-term passion for providing her expertise to developing projects and educational improvements on a domestic and then a global scale. Emily now works with So They Can, a not-for-profit organisation that believes that every child deserves access to education. So They Can works in partnership with local communities and governments in Kenya and Tanzania to deliver sustainable education programs and infrastructure to address the root causes of poverty. In today's discussion, we talk about some of the developments in the not-for-profit space that Emily has witnessed over the years and the shifting mindset towards charities in more recent times. We also delve into the growing disparity between the haves and the have-nots and the immense poverty faced by our global neighbours. Em talks about the unique additional barriers faced by females in our own communities and abroad and the positive impact that equal education would have, not only for those receiving the education, but also for the broader economy and the global climate crisis. Coffin and Bond have recently committed to funding So They Can's Ayamango school project in Tanzania. So I am so thrilled to bring this conversation to our listeners and provide an introduction to one of the brilliant humans driving this organization. Welcome, Emily. Welcome to the Kofkin Bond podcast. It's such a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for making the time to join me amongst your incredibly busy schedule. You've had an incredible career spanning across the education sector as well as the um, charitable not-for-profit sector. So perhaps for our listeners, you could give us a bit of a background in your career history and where you started and the, the progress that you've made since. Sure. Hi, Tali. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast today. It's um, a real pleasure to to be here with you today. Um, Yes, so I've been really lucky with my career and I've I've had quite a diverse diverse career with lots of different jobs, but I've actually really enjoyed all of my my different roles. Um, I started out as a primary school teacher in London in the UK and um, it's something, education is something that I always come back to. So just having that foundation of starting out as a teacher has um, really, um, yeah, it's just really helped helped my career and helped me understand the kind of principles of education and what's important and, and how teachers work and how schools work. So it's been, it's been a really useful thing to have. And my other jobs have kind of fallen out of that. So um, yes, so I was teaching in a primary school and I just I was just happened to be asked to join this pilot program in the UK. They were they were um, it was at a time um, when they were making quite a few changes to the curriculum and they were bringing in a new subject called citizenship, which was all about children being empowered and learning the sort of leadership skills and teamwork skills to be able to deliver a community action project. And so the children would come up, come up with, um, they'd interview people in their community and they'd come up with some kind of issue or problem in their community that, that they wanted to solve. And then in groups, 
they would um, come up with a plan and then follow it through and deliver the program and then um, see what the difference that they had made was. And, and it was a whole kind of year long program. And I um, worked with another educational charity with my group of year five at the time. And we went through the project and um, and then after that, I got asked to come out of teaching supposedly for a year to train other teachers around the country in the UK on delivering this new subject, citizenship. And so I initially I was quite um, wary because I loved teaching and thought I'm going to miss it too much, but thought I'd give it a go. And I haven't looked back. So I actually haven't gone back to teaching um, since then. But as I said, all of my roles have been in the education sphere, whether that's at a university or in, in an educational charity. Yeah, it's amazing. You've obviously got such a um, nurturing personality. Um, it really shines through in everything that you do. I'm curious if there was um, particular role models when you were going through the education system that kind of inspired that that focus for you. Yeah, so I um, a little bit older than you, Tali. So I actually grew up in the UK in the 70s and 80s. And at that time, I think something that did really have an impact was um, Bob Geldof and Band-Aid and things that were happening um, in the world at the time in terms of famine relief. So Band-Aid um, was something that Bob Geldof started with some other musicians, and it was all about um, trying to support communities in Ethiopia who were going through a really bad famine. And um, it was the beginning of things like Red Nose Day and Comic Relief, but it it really built awareness in schools and just, just the general public. Everyone knew about what was happening in Africa with the famine and everyone wanted to get on board and help. So it really, um, it was the 80s, it really was a time when people were thinking more globally about supporting other people that that were um, that might that didn't have as much as people in the UK may have had. So I do think that had a big impact on me in terms of just opening my eyes to what else, what was going on and and also just I do remember sort of being aware of life's lottery in terms of you know just you just happen to be born somewhere. Um, you might be born into a family where you're allowed to have an education and you've got a roof over your head and food on the table, or you might be born somewhere where they're experiencing an awful drought and you don't have access to those things. And it is just that randomness of life, depending on where, where you're born. And, and I, I've always been aware that I've been very lucky. And so I have always kind of felt it it's up to me to try and help other people who might not have been as lucky. So interesting that you say that um, and speak about the passion and drive to support global communities that was happening, you know, back then in the 80s, whereas now data tends to suggest that we prefer to donate and support charities and not-for-profits that are working in our own backyard. So I wonder what what do you think is kind of driving that change now where we are more, I guess, insular in our focus? I think I I don't know about other countries, but just I've been in Australia. So you can probably tell. By, well, so I grew up in the UK, but I've been in Australia for about 12 years now. And um, and so 
I think I actually think the the bushfires um, a few years ago um, and the flood the the floods that we had and the natural disasters and Australia I think has has gone through a particularly hard time and and I think um, that definitely brought Australians together in terms of looking after people who were doing it tough and and um, through those disasters and I think. COVID as well has also reinforced that we need to look after people in our own backyard and so um, yes I, there's definitely a trend um, towards helping people in Australia and a lot of corporates as well will give to Australian charities but are some are less likely to give to overseas charities so yeah I think we can in Australia at the moment we are quite inward looking um, but I think it's, you know, the cost of living crisis, there's there's so many people that everyone knows that's struggling that um, I think I think that might be one of the reasons why we are more looking more inward. Yeah, it's interesting, though, isn't it? Because whilst there's been so many things going on in our own backyard that that are quite negative, when we contrast it still to what is happening elsewhere, we're still in a very privileged position. So I think the the media has a very large role to play in that as well. Um, and it's I think from my perspective as well, what I hear is that we see so much coverage of really extreme events that happen around the globe. For example, what's going on in the Middle East at the moment where it catches our attention for this short period of time and then... Yeah. We, we almost come become um, immune to it where it's not shocking anymore and we kind of just tune out. Um, are you noticing that from your own role at the moment working with So They Can, which is obviously a, a global globally focused charity, how are you finding that play out in your own space? I think um, you're, you're definitely right. There's, there's so many, there are so many things happening around the world. Um, like what's happening in the Middle East, but also with Ukraine. And I think the younger generation, I think something that I've noticed is that the younger generation are a lot more likely to give to certain issues that come up, like the war in Ukraine, or they might respond to a particular disaster. Whereas I think older generation will, will often find a charity and just will tend to be quite loyal and be regular givers to those to those charities that they know and like and trust and so I do think there is more of a more there's more leaning towards reacting to events that are happening and giving specifically to those to the people that are suffering for those particular events depending on and um, how much coverage they get in the media as well so yes so it it it, it does mean that other it is it's definitely becoming harder and harder to to find supporters and funds for, you know, supporting um, communities who are suffering from extreme poverty due to where they live and their, you know, just in terms of the the environment and the fact that there's droughts happening at the moment and um, yeah, so it, yeah, it it's hard. I think it's hard for all charities at the moment because again, the cost of living crisis and and what's happening in Australia. Um, I think there are less people are able to give at the moment, but there's more there's but 
at the same time there's also more demand on services and it charities I think are expected to do more and more but with less money and so it's yeah it's it's hard for the whole sector at the moment yeah there's so much pressure on justifying every sort of little expense for a not-for-profit that you know that same level of scrutiny isn't held um towards for-profit businesses it seems really unfair in a sense to have this different standard that we hold not-for-profits to um having been in the space for so long now what have you noticed in terms of um how you go about attracting funds from a marketing perspective what have been some of the main shifts that you've seen gosh well i well i suppose so we we get our funds from a number of different um supporters so um we do get some government funds so we're accredited by DFAT, the department of foreign trade and affairs so um we've been through their very rigorous rigorous process of making sure that we're spending money as we should be and we've got good processes and good monitoring and evaluation in place so some of our money is coming from the australian government we also um have we also get some trusts and foundations um supporters with grants for certain projects um and we also but then um a lot of our funding we're relying on people in australia people in new zealand well actually we have supporters all around the world but the majority of our supporters are in australia and new zealand at the moment um just giving us just um because they're quite loyal they know us they trust us they like what we're doing some of our supporters have been to africa and seen some of the projects in action and we kind of rely they they continue to support us. So we're very lucky that we do have a, a loyal supporter base. But but it is it's we we every day our team on the ground will have people from from other school communities that we aren't working with yet saying, please can you come and support us? Please can you work with us? We, you know, we've seen the difference that your support has had to other school communities. So there's constant um need for us to try and raise more funds to have even more, to reach more people because um yeah the, the issue isn't isn't going away anytime soon and um i think as a lot of people know we we're not doing very well in terms of progressing the united nations sustainable development goals in terms of no poverty by 2030 we're we're not doing very well at all in fact i read today 8% of the world's population is living in extreme poverty um, now. So um, we've got six years to fix that. And I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. There's, there's a lot of work to be done. So in, in terms of marketing, we're always looking for, for new ways to um, raise awareness about what's happening in, in areas of Kenya and Tanzania and what um, some members of the communities that we work with, what their the challenges and barriers that they face just every day. Um, and one of the main barriers that um, our communities are facing is not having access to a quality education, which I think is the key to breaking the poverty cycle. Um, so, so yeah, we're it's, it's a constant battle to try and come up with new ways um, to to let people know what's happening and and to try and 
persuade them to look outside of Australia to support people on the other side of the world um, and try and make that link between their life and the life of someone in Kenya and Tanzania and and why they should get involved and help because because there are so many positives for us to help people in Kenya and Tanzania the benefits of is it's it's going to be good for all of us in the long term yeah you're spot on and there's so much in that that I want to loop back to um, but I want to go back to your comment about um working with that DFAT process. Um, and I think it'd be really interesting for our listeners to hear a little bit about what that process looks like um, and why that's important to have that DFAT registration. Um, and maybe just an idea around, you know, timelines, how long that process takes. Yes. So there are two levels of accreditation that you can get from DFAT. So there's base accreditation, which means that um, you still go through a very long process in terms of there's a lot of paperwork um, and there's a lot of explaining, you know, what policies you have, what systems you have, how do you manage your finances, how do you, how do you manage conflicts of interest within an organisation, you know, child protection, all all sorts of issues that you should be, as a charity that's involved in education, you should be doing properly, and so um, and then. So there's a probably, you know, pages and pages, hundreds of pages of sort of background that you would you would explain how you do certain things across governance, finance, mon- yeah, monitoring and evaluation. How do you make sure that you're learning from your projects and that you're spending your money in the most effective way to have the the best, the biggest impact, and that you're, you know, even just things from how do you make sure that you're helping people that really do need help like what's your criteria for coming up with a new project and working in a new school community how do you make those decisions so so many things to think about and work through Um, and so we got our base accreditation um, a few years ago and the I we always knew that we wanted to get full accreditation but you you almost get your I think you can go straight to full accreditation, but it's it's unusual to do that. So a lot of charities will get base first. And then um, you then have kind of a week's worth of interviews and um, yeah, just just sort of drilling down on things. And and so it is a, and it really it should be a really robust process and it mm. is a robust process. But it means that we can say to our supporters and any potential new supporters that, you know, someone else has done the due diligence on us. The Australian government are happy that we have everything in place um, to assure you that we are spending your money well and what we're doing is sustainable and it, it will have an impact. And um, and yes, yeah, so we're so the Australian government have done this so that um, we can implement. We we're they're actually giving us some of their aid budget, so we're implementing it on behalf of the Australian government. So yeah, it's it's it was a lot to go through, but it's um, it's great because we now all know we've got great processes and great systems in place, and and so do our donors. And it's I think it's it's helped and given a lot of people reassurance. Do you think there's um, 
improvements to be made though from um, Australian government in terms of the policies in place to help not-for-profits do what they want to do and do it in a more efficient way? I think more so I would say generally the way the general all of us society thinks about charity it it could change for the better and the, and this is um something that you I think you've probably watched the TED talk that Dan Pelota 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 yeah. um, did about um changing the way we think about charity and and this is something that I feel very strongly about I think um, we limit what charities can do often because of how we think about them. And and he talks about the fact that there are two different rule books, one for cor- the corporate world and one for not-for-profits. And we're actually hindering our not-for-profits. And, you know, it, living in a capitalist world, we will always need the not-for-profit sector because there will always be people who are left behind because of their circumstances, they're vulnerable. And so... Um, we will, we'll always need a not-for-profit sector, but we're not really investing in it and trusting the, the sector as much as I think we could do. And it is it is really hindering us. So, um, I mean, you even with the bushfires, so I was working um, at a big org- different organisation at the time, and there was a lot of scrutiny, a lot of negativity about how funds were being spent because a lot of donors and would say, you know, I gave $10, I want 100% of that $10 to go on the ground to the person that's going to benefit. And, you, you know, you you can't run an effective organisation based on volunteers solely. You, if you're going to have, if you're going to have, you know, have systems where you can report back on your financial systems and how you spend your money and the impact that you're having, which is what charities have to do now, and so we should. But if you're going to have that, you need to have systems in place. You need to have people working for a charity. And this, these things cost money. So to have an effective charity, you need to invest in it. And so it's unrealistic to expect charities to give 100% of donations to the people that need it, because you need people to run the charity and actually deliver the projects. So I think changing our mindset about charities would would really help charities because i'm you know so we're looking to expand into the us at the moment and um and the uk actually so we're hoping to raise awareness about what we do and and get some more follow get some more supporters in in america and the uk and there are certain um sort of platforms and websites that you can go to that are that almost like a ranking for charities and um people can go donors can go to them and say you know has this has this charity got the gold seal of approval of this certain kind of platform or um and and so and it's but unfortunately a, a lot of these sort of seals of approval are based on how much you spend on admin or how much you spend on your fundraising rather than how much impact you have and whether you are effective so you could have the, you could have um you know a tiny you could have a tiny charity that's just got two volunteers that spend nothing on admin or fundraising because they're all doing it as volunteers but the the impact that they can have just doing something as a volunteer 
No, so it's it's just kind of changing the way we think about charities, I think, would would help the sector. It's amazing, isn't yeah. it? Because we would never expect a business to succeed with um, minimal staff, no investment in training, recruitment. Um, you know, we, we put so much focus in the corporate space on attracting the right talent to foster innovation and growth, but we don't apply that same mindset at all to the not-for-profit space it's you know somehow find the best staff possible but pay them no money um have a zero dollar marketing budget allocate allocate nothing beyond the actual operations of the day-to-day and somehow grow your scale and have an amazing impact which is it's unbelievable um and i don't know how you change that mindset it's I don't, I don't know. Do you have any ideas? <laughs> I think just talking about it and bringing it up. I think there there are a lot of leaders in the in the not for profit space who are trying to talk about this more and take it to government and and use their platforms, you know, at conferences and things to to say that just just be, you know just because someone might spend a little bit more on an admin doesn't mean they're not a great charity doing amazing things and we should support them. So, um, yeah, it is interesting, isn't it? You talk about talent and you're right. I think often people, when they're thinking, you know, they're at uni and they're thinking what they want to do. I think a lot of people do like the idea of working in the not-for-profit space if they're, you know, they, they, yeah, they do like the idea of making a difference and um, trying to make the world a better place. But often it's, you know, they're giving the, at the moment it feels like it's either you can sacrifice a good salary um, but you you get to kind of do good and feel good about what you're doing because you're in the not-for-profit sector, um, or you can go into the corporate world and um, and have a bigger salary. And and so it 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 definitely means we're definitely losing amazing talent. Um, and as you say, um, creativity in terms of working out new ways of delivering things and and growing the sector. Um, not to say there aren't really talented people in the sector, but um, it, it definitely feels like you have to almost make a choice. Um, and we can't invest in, in giving people, you know, really decent salaries, because if if any of the anyone found out that someone was being paid a certain the same amount that you might be, or, you know, in a corporate job, there'd be uproar. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Such a double standard. Um, I want to change tact a little bit and talk about um, how your exposure to the things that you see on a day-to-day impact your your own mental health. Because I imagine, you know, I mentioned before that we see so much on the TV now about horrible things that go on um, around the globe and we come, I guess, well, we just tune out realistically, but I think part of that tuning out is because it seems so foreign to us and we're not there on the ground witnessing it. So it, it feels almost like it's not real. But for yourself, you know, you're actually traveling to these nations and these communities and experiencing it on the front line. How how does that impact you and your your own mental health? And if mm. it's not comfortable to talk about, obviously we can skip past oh, that. No. <laughs> I'm totally comfortable to talk about it. I, I would, it's, um, most of the time, it's, 
it's it's actually a really uplifting organization to work for because our team on the ground so 100% of our team on in Kenya and Tanzania are local they're from the local area they've grown up there they know the local customs traditions they speak the local tribal languages um, and they um, we every day they will send us photos and updates of what's happening in the in the 51 across the 51 different schools that we work with um, and so it it's really motivating to sort of go to your computer at the start of a day because Kenya and Tanzania at most of the time are about seven hours behind us. So often you'll finish your day, you know, have your evening, go to bed, wake up. And but lots of things have been happening in Kenya and Tanzania. And so you'll you'll have a look and it's like, oh, wow, that school's got water. That school community has got water for the first time, access to clean water. And there'll be pictures of you know the children seeing it and enjoying it and teachers there and actually the whole community has come to celebrate the the fact that the water the drill has actually hit water you know after going down 200 meters or whatever it is and so it's really it's really cool it's a it's um yeah it it's it's great for my mental health because it's you're seeing the impact in real time of um people supporters what their what their support has done as well as what kind of the role that I'm playing but also you can share this great news with with your supporters and it's and it's a win-win for everyone everyone um you know people in Australia get to benefit knowing that that their support has made a difference and and the people in the community in Kenya are gonna it's life-changing so um I actually find I actually find it very uplifting and it's it's good for my mental health to know that we can we don't have to just accept that there's extreme poverty on the other side of the world and we can't do anything about it because we can yeah it would be so rewarding and the the impact that you're having is incredible you've mentioned obviously 51 schools that you're um or so they can operating across at the moment which is amazing um and it's probably the perfect segue i guess to touch on what exactly so they can is um and how well, you guys operate because i've had the pleasure of meeting you about a year ago now ish um ish, yeah. where, where i heard all about it but i think it would be great to hear from yourself directly a bit of a snapshot overview of so they can because it is an incredible organization oh thanks tyler yes so um we were founded about 15 years ago um and we so we're an international NGO. We work very closely with the governments in Kenya and Tanzania at different levels, um, so local um, and national government. So we work, we all work closely with the Ministry of Education and the Ministry of um, Health in both countries. We have MOUs with the government again at different levels, um, so that we're we're working within the the current structure in in the countries. We're not so some some NGOs might build a school, a private school outside of the government system, um, but but we've learned over the years that in order to have a bigger impact, it, it's better to work within the the local structures and systems and work with the government. So yes, yeah, so we've been going for fifteen years. We started out um, in an big uh, so our one of our co-founders, Cass, um, was introduced to an IDP community in Kenya, um, in the Kuros, that IDP stands for Internally Displaced Persons Camp. And so um, there were quite a few of them at the time because there were some 
there was a lot of violence after the elections in 2007 and a lot of Kenyans became refugees in their own country. And so there were many of these internally displaced camps with people living with you know, um, makeshift tents, no access to water, sanitation. And um, one particular IDP community that Cass got to know and, and talked to, they asked her if um, she could help them build a school because they saw education as the, the only way out of poverty. And so um, she developed a relationship with them and developed the MOU with the government. And so together, the community, the government, and so they can um, built a school from scratch, basically. And it's called Aberdeer Rangers Primary School. And it's it's still going now. And it's just, it's. Um, in hand, it's completely run by the government now. So it's what we call a sustained project and um, it educates 1200 children every day. So we started out with a, building a school from scratch, but over the years we've, we've learned um, about the difference between aid and development. So, and what's sustainable in a community because we don't want communities to become dependent and reliant on, on funds from overseas. So we what, what we want um, is for to just build local capabilities and knowledge and confidence so that we can then exit and go and work with a, with a new community. So when we start working with a new school community, we'll talk about an exit strategy from the get go so that um, everyone is on the same page and everyone knows that after six to eight years, will will have moved on and hopefully that project that school will be sustained and that the projects will be able to carry on without support funding from so they can so um that's how we work and as i said 100 percent of our team are locals and again that's something that we've learned over the year work we can have a lot more of an impact and be a lot more effective um and we always get community buy-in from the beginning. So again, when we talk, when we when we're sort of talking to a school community about working together and collaborating and what we can do together, um, we're we're always looking for communities that don't don't want just want a handout. They they want sustainable development. They want to be able to do things on their own. They just want to work with us in order to to get to that step because of because of the environment they're they're in for example in Baringo at the moment they're well in lots quite a few different parts of Africa they're suffering from the worst drought in 90 in 40 years so it's it, it's incredibly hard to get food and water and um, there's a massive crisis there at the moment so um, we're doing what we can in, in Baringo to try and um, get access to water and food security in schools so that so that they can, um, yeah, so that um, they can break their poverty cycle and um, go send their children to school and then eventually be able to um, no longer need support. So, yeah, so sorry, I've kind of gone all all over the place a bit, but we're, so we're, yeah, we're, we're all about education and empowerment, helping communities, vulnerable communities break the poverty cycle through those two things. Mm. And, um, so we've, we've got about 10 different educational projects that we'll work with a school community on. So that ranges from building school improvements to building classrooms, toilets, um, 
getting cooking pots for a school feeding program. And then we've got um, teacher training projects, um, a shambaletu, which means our farm, which is all about sustainable farming. So schools establish their own farm and that food then goes towards the school feeding program. And um, so quite a, a number of diverse education projects. And then we've got four community development projects that kind of sit underneath the education projects. And because, um, again, something else that we've learned is you can you can have the most amazing school. But if a, if a family is living in you know absolute extreme poverty, they will not send their children to school because their priority is just to get food or water wow. for that day. That's right. So just to survive. And mm -hmm. so um, we've learned that we need to support communities holistically. So we now have a family strengthening project where we work with the most vulnerable families and we might give them um, um, income generation training so they can start their own businesses and then again um, stand on their own two feet so we'll normally work with families for about three years and help them again build up their skills confidence and knowledge so they again they they don't need any support after the three years and we've had real success with that with families saying you know we're good now we and so we've been able to go on and help other families um so family strengthening community health so again we work with the ministry of health and support local clinics and then um we have a, a youth and um child and youth development project and then a women's empowerment project which is all about training women in business skills and giving micro loans so again they can start their own businesses so that they can afford to send their children to school so and they all work together. It's really incredible, Em, and it's so nice hearing you you talk about it because you're clearly so passionate about it all. Um, and you've obviously touched on the the devastating levels of poverty that they have. Um, mm. But we also know there's a bit of a, a disparity in terms of there's some additional challenges that females are facing yes. in these communities. Um, and I guess there's some extra projects or, or ways that you're you're navigating that space to try and provide yeah. that extra support specifically to young girls yes so um that's exactly right in so we work in three communities we work in the babati district in tanzania we work in and around nakuru in kenya and in baringo county in kenya as well and um all, all three all three of the those communities do have there are additional challenges for women and girls um Baringo in particular um has a lot of there are a lot of challenges and our community there tell tell us that about 85 percent of the girls that are aged between um nine to thirteen um are go are go through female genital cutting and child marriage. So before the age of 13, so they're sold off. Um, so girls are often seen as the property of their fathers and brothers. Um, yeah, as I said, to be sold for commercial gain. So often a girl might, might be sold for four or five goats and she might then become the fifth or sixth wife of a much older man. Um, will often get pregnant straight away and and then obviously there there's just there is no way out of poverty because she'll have no education then and so the cycle of poverty continues um, with her children and so um, it it can be pretty tough being a girl in Baringo 
And um, so something that, again, that we've learned and how we've evolved over the years as we've learned about what works is that as well as having 100% local staff, um, our local team on the ground, um, we also have local mothers and father, champion mothers and fathers in every one of our 51 partner schools. So they are mums and dads who have kids at the school and they work very closely with our team and they're empowered and have training and they will base, they will, um, they have really, they have made so many of our projects work because rather than me going in and saying, uh, you know, I'm from the UK and I've been living in Australia and I think you should send your girl to school rather than selling her off. It wouldn't work. But having our local mothers and fathers who have grown up in the community, they know the traditions, they know the customs for them to say to their neighbours and their friends, look, it's important that we send our girls to school and this is why. Um, that has made a huge difference. And we actually, since working in Baringa, and I think we've been there five or six years now, we just, at the end of last year, our monitoring and evaluation manager told us that um, girls' enrolment in Baringo County has gone up by 76%. So it's making a difference and it, it's happened a lot quicker than we thought it, it would. And, and actually at, in December as well, um, in Baringo for the first time in, in um, some of the communities, they actually had a three-day um, session for about 90 elders in the community um, who got together to talk about an alternate rite of passage for girls rather than cutting, going through the cutting. And so there was a session for the elders that all got together to talk about it, but also some uh, children in the schools um, also talked about it and shared their experiences. And so, again, it's it's opening, it's just opening the door to, to talking about it, thinking about alternatives um, and just... Talk, think, talk, thinking about the importance of girls having an education. And yeah, so um, there's a lot happening on the ground. It's mainly due to our local champion mothers and fathers who work closely with our team, but um, change is happening and girls are getting into school. And I think we're going to see some amazing leaders come out of those schools in a few years' time once those girls have had access to an education which they wouldn't have had otherwise. It's so good. And um, one of the things that I remember you mentioned to me was that um, elders in these communities are starting to have those conversations around, you know, we can we can sell off our daughters for a few goats now and never have any ongoing, I guess, benefit from that. Or we can put them through schooling and then they can, you know, become business owners at some point and be earning that sort of um, or income, I guess, on an ongoing basis. And it's just you know, learning through seeing um, rather than learning by by being told, which we obviously, you know, doesn't doesn't work. <laughs> no, that's exactly right, Tyler. It's, it's not just the right thing to do to let your daughter go to school, but it's actually the smart thing to do as well. Mm -hmm. um, as you say, we've had girls that have been allowed an education and they're, they're now earning the equivalent of five goats a month. So and giving that to their family. So there's it's you know, there's there's a financial gain for your daughter getting an education um, and like you say, having um, starting starting their own businesses. So, yeah, every everyone benefits. And and um, something else I know that 
we were talking about was the link between educating girls and addressing the climate crisis mm. there's very strong link between um yeah girl getting more girls back into school and keeping them in school and the positive benefits that that will have on on um the climate yeah yeah you you've actually bet me to it because i was going to say um the last thing i would like to touch on today is that link between the the goal of achieving gender equality um and empowering women and girls and the rest of the uh 17 sdgs because we know that there's that interrelation between them all um and i guess i would like to hear from your perspective how those different goals interplay with each other and how exactly educating young girls can impact other things like um GDP of a country you know like it's it's in mm. the data we see the impact that it has mm. yes there's a so um something that I've been reading up a lot about is this link because I find it really interesting because not that long ago I didn't I didn't really fully understand the the importance of that well the link and how um, educating girls will have such a positive impact on all, all of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. So back in 2017, there was an, a project called Project Drawdown. And um, Project Drawdowns, it's a group of global experts on climate solutions. And they basically um, ranked the top 100 most effective solutions to reverse global warming. and um, Educating girls and family planning came in at number six, which out of 100 for the top most 100 oh, um, wow. effective solutions is pretty, um, I think a lot of people find that surprising because um, electric vehicles, for example, sits at number 26 and rooftop solar panels is at number 10. So educating girls and family planning is an even more effective solution to addressing the climate emergency than, than those solutions. So, um, yeah, there are, there are so many reasons why I think um, partly women who are educated have um, fewer children and later in life and are much more like, um, yeah, and so and um, so they're, they're manage actively managing their reproductive health. And so obviously over time, the global pop population will come down and I, I mean there are some stats from the United Nations on that um, so if we invest in girls education we'll have two billion fewer people by 2045 um, which obviously wow. overall will help us reduce carbon emissions but when I say that I'm really conscious of the fact that um, it's the richest one percent of the global population that actually cause about half of the um, co2 emissions so uh, and and it's also the most vulnerable in in our global population that are, are sort of most badly hit by the impacts of climate change and the natural disasters that are happening around the world and and so there really isn't uh, you know it's it isn't fair that one percent of us are causing the problems and it's the most vulnerable around the world that are going to be the first the most badly impacted by it 
So um, having said that about reducing the population, that's just one, one piece of, of the puzzle because a lot of the people in Moringo aren't aren't causing, you know, they're not part of the problem for emissions of, of um, carbon. So, um, but they're also, if we educate girls, they are learning about sustainable farming practices, they're learning about science, they're learning about innovation, they are becoming motivated to learn about what part they might be able to play in addressing the climate emergency. So we're educating girls to, to be part of the solution, um, which is another, another piece of the puzzle as well. Um, and yeah, so women will be, will be, do and will be playing a large part in reducing poverty around the world in, in terms of um, starting their own businesses, and um, injecting, sort of helping the economy grow. So um, yeah, we're or basically we're all going to benefit from educating girls. Um, again, so it, it, I, I mean, I say this a lot, but it isn't. It's not just the morally right thing to do, helping girls get an education, but for all of us to benefit from the upside, it, it's the smart thing to do. Mm, you're so right. Um, one one last question for you, Em, um, in closing. What would be two things that you would suggest to our listeners that they could do or they could action this week to help bridge the gap between gender inequality? Oh, oh gosh. Um, oh. Well, there's so much we could do in Australia. <laughs> um, I was, gosh, there's so much to be done, Tali. That is a hard question. Um, I reckon we should be doing, well, I think we could all be doing something within our, I would, oh, gosh, that's really hard. Because there's so much, there is, look, there's still so many issues with gender equality in Australia. There's mm. so many we have to get, you know, work work on. Um, but there's, I I am biased about supporting women and girls in Kenya and Tanzania because, again, I've seen how tough it can be there. And you know, to to be denied an education because you're a girl, to be cut and sold when you're 12 years old um just because you're a girl it's not fair you, yeah. you literally you no chance to to do anything different so all of your choices are taken away from you so i would say if you can find a charity like so they can that is all about educating girls and keeping girls in school um do what learn about what they're doing find out how they're making a difference and support them um and yeah do what you can to support your sisters and mothers and daughters and colleagues um in australia as well i think that's such a big one isn't it it's just the day-to-day -day mindset um and being more aware and mindful of the our own ingrained beliefs and um, for, for both men and females, um, I think we're all guilty of it at times being, um, oh, myself included, I, I notice sometimes that I can have 
a thought that's, I guess, sexist in a sense against women. Um, and it's purely because you, you're raised believing these things and hearing these mindsets all the time. You know, it might be something as little as the expectation that, you know, growing up, um, my mum always did the dishes, you know, and it's just that that common belief that that's the way it should be and you catch yourself in those moments and just trying to be a bit more aware of that in the day-to-day and, you know, hopefully get to a point where it's not just noticing the little things, it's the, it's the bigger ones that we want to start tackling at some point. But thank you so much, Em. I really appreciate your time today. Like I said, you're incredible. Um, you've had an amazing career today, but also just the work that you're doing with So They Can is amazing. Um, and to be working in the not-for-profit sector is incredible in itself. Like we've mentioned, it's a tough space to be because there's different standards that you're you're held accountable to. So thank you for what you do. Um, and I'm really pleased that Kofkin Bond have a, a relationship with So They Can Now and will be continuing to support your organisation. So thank you. Thank you, Tali. And yeah, huge thank you to Kofkin Bond for your your support we're really looking forward to working with you and and um and taking you on the journey um with the school that you're you're going to be supporting so yeah thank thank you so much and thanks for having me today tali my absolute pleasure thanks em <sighs> thank you oh sorry i was probably rabbiting on Oh no, that's literally perfect. I've um I've gotten in a habit in the earlier podcasts of, you know, like nodding or saying yes every five seconds when the Kofkin Bond Podcast is a product from Kofkin Bond and Co., which we are an authorized representative of Gown Financial. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of the Kofkin Bond Podcast are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decision, you should read the product disclosure statement and if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from the podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Kofkin Bond website or you can find resources on the ASIC website and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Kofkin Bond and co and the hosts of the Kofkin Bond podcast acknowledge the traditional custodians of the country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today.